Okay, um, welcome everyone to ACCA tonight. Um, and this is the first in our series of public programs for New 11. And tonight we have um, our curator, associate curator of the exhibition, Hannah Matthews, along with Brenda Van Heck, Annie Wu, and Rebecca Bauman. Please make them very welcome. <laughs> and I guess I'll begin. <laughs> Thank you all for coming this evening and to the three of you for joining us. It's been a long 10 days of installing and opening and then reflecting on the New 11 exhibition experience. Um, this evening is really going to be a relatively informal conversation amongst the four of us about the artist's works in the exhibition and I suppose the experience of participating in New. Perhaps we can have a chat and if there's any questions at the end, you know, feel free to kind of stick your hand up and let us know. I'm actually going to begin with Brendan Van Heck, who is a Perth-based Perth artist who I have worked with a few times over the past several years. Um, I presume that most of you have had an opportunity to go in and have a look at the exhibition? Yes. Um, so you'll know that Brendan's work uh, is presented in Gallery 3 and is a combination of um, glass sheets, disco balls, a neon component and um, some bronze mirrors. The title of Brendan's work is very curious. Um, the person who cried a million tears. I know it's a starting point often in your working process, so I wondered if you might talk a bit about the title, how it came to be and perhaps what it reflects in terms of the actual installation that you ended up making. Yeah, for sure. Um, titles are always a really important part of my work. Can, you, can everyone hear that? Yeah? Um, yeah, they're always a really important part of my work. Um, and often the titles come first and they're actually, you know, so the title comes and then um, the work, the actual practical side of it is generated from the title. Um, the literature is often an important part of my work. Yeah. So, you know, I like the idea of storytelling and stuff like that, and especially having an Indian background um, where there's a strong history of um, narrative. Um, it all, that, that plays an important part of, in my work as well. So um, in talking about how, what the title means and how it relates to the work, the, the idea of this person crying a million tears is an exaggeration of their emotions. And the tale that I'm trying to tell is the tale of a person who, um, who tells lies and they're kind of deceitful and they create all these illusions. So is that... That totally does. And I get that, that sort of leads, I suppose, then to the choice of materials yep. um, that you've included, the glass, the disco balls, the reflection, the mirrors. Because it's quite an elegant use of those materials, I find very subdued, but quite an elegant um, use of them. And, and certainly the text that's been written for the exhibition catalogue, which is, I think is available next Friday, talks about Brendan's work in the lineage of romantic conceptualism. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the choice of those materials and how they kind of play into this idea of um, duplicity and surface readings. Okay. Um... I have been working with Neon for the past few years, yeah. since 2007. Um, and as I've worked with the material, one of the, one of the interesting things that, uh, about it is the, I've always thought about the gas and the way that that gas is, a, I think, a, as a volatile substance. 
So neon was an important part of each each element in in the work um, is important for um, for its qualities and um, I think for each part the what's interesting in terms of this idea of deception and betrayal and lies and stuff is the fact that these um, materials themselves have transformative qualities and they I think I was thinking in terms of even in um, art hist uh, art history. Um, and thinking of the way that, you know, for instance, like the use of the bronze mirrors, um, they reference the use of bronze in art and the fact that bronze has the ability to take on the form of something else. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's the, and, and so, to even think, so I've kind of said the, ga the gas is one of those things that is a transformative substance. The bronze, I think, is a, as a transformative material. And then there's the glass, which is something that doesn't have a fixed state, and, and that, it can take on the shape of something else as well. Um, so I think, I think it, it, it's, the, it's the way that each of these elements can imitate something else yeah. and take on the form of something else. And through that, they kind of create a deception. Because there's a lot of containment in the way that you've used those materials or the way that you've manipulated them. So the, the bronze mirrors, which, you know, I guess traditionally, conventionally are used to reflect a person, are actually placed quite high up on the wall in the exhibition space. And they end up actually reflecting and, in a way, kind of containing certain architectural elements of the exhibition space. And then the disco balls, which are of varying size and spray painted with white paint, so something that is usually suspended from the ceiling and actually refracting and expanding the environment around it is made opaque and is actually placed on the floor and becomes quite weighted and anchor-like. And the gas containing the neon. So there's, there's a containment and often there's a negation, I suppose, of the function of those materials yeah. in um, the day-to-day. -day. Yeah. Um. Do you want me to answer something? With that? No, I guess I guess I'm also interested in the you know I, I I guess over a number of years I've seen you working more and more with these mm. materials and the way you work with them demonstrates you know to me a very strong and very nuanced understanding of their elemental properties, yes. but also of their symbolic nature, both in art history, both in literature, which you mentioned before. So what they kind of stand in for, and um, you know with the title um, the person who cried a million tears, I know that. Um, the Hall of Mirrors at the Paris, at the Palace of Versailles, was like an early reference point. Yeah, that, that was a that was a starting point in the work, um, and I suppose there's you know there's so many stories that come out around the idea of the Hall of Mirrors and the whole idea of deception and illusion. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that that was a strong starting point, and it was kind of having that idea and thinking about how to work with that idea and how to translate yeah. it into a work, and you know yeah that was. It kind of led to you choosing these these different elements that that I've actually been working with for the past few years. Yeah. Um, like previously, I have worked with disco balls, and um, it's kind of changing their form as well because you, you kind of have a particular type of form anyway that is all mirrors, and you know generally it reflects the environment that surrounds it. And previously, when I worked with, it, I coloured it in with texture, yeah. you know, so it was completely covered in that way. Um, and this time, the coating is different again, where there's, you know, it becomes like a mask and it reveals nothing. And I suppose where I've tried to characterise somebody within this tale, it's like they reveal nothing about themselves well, and they're, is, they're yep. slippery, you know, you can't actually catch them. Um, when I was talking to somebody last night about the work, they, they said that they kept 
feeling like they were running into these dead, dead end. ends. Mm. And I said, yeah, well, that's the kind of feeling that you're meant to get from the work. So. Yeah, you kind of want to know who this character is who cried mm. a million tears. I mean, I do when I tie the title to the experience of the work. Um, but you do keep coming across these dead ends and looking in, in these materials. Yeah. It's unusual. I mean, it's very elegant and it's very kind of slippery, but it's quite sort of um, elusive, I suppose, is probably the word, word to kind of throw in there. I think the other thing um, that I'd like to talk with you about as well for the new 11 is, you know, I was able to invite Brendan to um, participate in the show 12 months ago, like a considerable... Yep. time ago and I think um, you know people are often curious as to the working process of conceiving the work and presenting the work because often it's a very short period of time and so I guess perhaps if you could just speak a little bit about those 12 months okay um, you know I suppose in the context of what the new new exhibition is and its kind of history but also in terms of conceiving the work and the process of coming to the final work itself and perhaps also living in Perth and so the opportunities to come to Melbourne and kind of get a better experience of the space as well because, you know, this exhibition has four interstate artists who are not as familiar with the Acker architecture. And even for Melbourne artists, you know, the space changes all the time. It's one of the most significant challenges, I think, of exhibiting here at Acker. So I'm just curious about that sort of 12 months yeah. process and what unfolds for you. Yeah, it was interesting you even talking about the space because um, I know every time I've been into this space it's always been you know the main galleries the big ones divided up and then these yeah. three galleries have been divided up so it's always been like these little kind of rabbit hutches and you know yeah. and so I suppose when I was thinking about the space I actually had no idea what this space was like once all of those walls were removed um, and I think so I, I started trying to conceive of a work for you know you, you gave me dimensions and plans and stuff like that. So, but I think, you know, it always having been a darkened space and being divided up in that way, it was a little bit hard to kind of get in an idea. Mm. So, you know, I had to try and think of, you know, conceiving of a work that fit into the, you know, the, these kind of virtual dimensions that I was given. Um, I think, you know, it was... In, in thinking about the year, I mean, oh, going back to the other point, I, I did two, I came here for two visits, and I think the first visit, um, I can't remember the space, there was that video show on. It was dark. So I had, <laughs> couldn't get a sense of anything here. Yeah. And then the second time I came was just before the, um, the Kasuth show. Yeah. Um, and of course, every, all the walls had been taken away and everything was, was opened up. Um, I, think, I think in terms of working with the space, um, it's not, in initially thinking about it, it's not, it's not, the, not an easy space to work with mm. because you've got all those angles and you've, you know, you've got a straight one, straight line here and then you've got an angle there. So it was a matter of thinking about, you know, when I thought about, I had my idea and the idea, you know, came only, you know, kind of late in the part. Mm -hmm. And I know when you visited me in Perth, I was still trying to put these elements together. I had elements that I'd been working with, but it was... You know, and even the fact that the disco ball was something that I'd used previously, the spray painted one, and I had it in a, in a box in the mezzanine in my studio. And you said, you know, come on, get it out. And let's have a look at it. Let's have yeah. a look at it. Um, so that, that was interesting, us having that, that connection and you, you know, visiting me and then we were able to, you know, you kind of went, I said to you, look, I've been thinking about this and thinking about that. And you said, look, you know, just get the elements, 
put them together, you know, and you actually helped me think about how, how to put them together. So that, that helped me as well. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the, the kind of distance and not having, you know, the opportunity to regularly visit this space, it was trying to, as, you know, having to think about it um, and try and put it together in my head, you know, being in Perth as well. But keeping it quite loose until you arrived, because I know one or mm. two of the local artists in the show who felt that they knew the space very well. When it actually came to installing and presenting, the move from kind of theory into practice was um, challenging in, in some cases, you know. So I, I think um, there's probably some benefit to actually keeping the plan quite loose until you get in the space. And with yourself, you know, you kind of had an idea of what you wanted to do and it ended up totally flipping 180. Yeah, it did. You know, mm -hmm. it's like the mirrors were meant to be in a different corner and the neon in another corner. Yeah. And it was like, say, you know, once I got in here and even the fact that the camera is in, was switched to one side, it just became an intrusive element. So that's why, and because everything is really minimal, yeah. that would have actually become a part of the work, which I didn't, you know, couldn't have that. Not so much. Wasn't going to fit, no. Yeah. Um, what was the other thing? There was something else I was going to say, but it's gone. Yeah. I guess the, the final question I'd like to ask you, and um, probably each of you, really, in the end, um, someone commented to me a few days ago about this sort of portal, which seems to kind of penetrate the space, the portal that's in your room, um, delineated by the neon, the portal that um, Dan Moynihan has created with the thresholds, both the institutional and the functional into the paradise escape space. And then what could be the, considered the portal of greatest hits, um, frozen eye sculpture of the alien. Mm. Um, you've had a considerable time now in the space. I just wondered if uh, across that time you had started reading your work in certain ways with other artists or artworks in the show. Any links or yeah, okay. connections that you kind of had revealed themselves? Because you weren't necessarily familiar with the practices of all the artists who were in the, in the exhibition. Yeah. It was really interesting because somebody the other night who I was talking to at the opening mm -hmm. said that they felt like that there was this kind of common element of death in the oh. show, which was, uh, was kind of like, okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and they, but they weren't talking about it in a negative way. They were kind of talking about it in a positive way. And they were kind of, you know, saying that there's, there seems to be this, you know, recurring theme in contemporary art and it's all a current theme, you know, yeah. and it, that has to do with death. So um, I hadn't actually, I hadn't thought about it and it wasn't until that person had said that and I went, yeah, okay, you know, that's, that's really interesting. So I think that was you think death. a recurring theme. I, I kind of, sorry. <laughs> I'm saying you think death, you think death is a common theme. Yeah, or make point of but, connection, maybe. Yeah, I think, I mean, they said that, but I, I kind of think there's this kind of like this, um, there's almost like this, this transitory element, yeah. I find, throughout the, you know, throughout the show, um, that I think is, is probably the thing that's kind of common to, to What about everybody. resurrection? Yeah, the resurrection. resurrection. <laughs> Death and resurrection. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's interesting because the, that person having said that to me, I was kind of, I thought, yeah, okay, it is, it, it is there, but... You know, you saying that I see, see that as a more positive kind of way of looking at it, and you know, that's why I kind of yeah. I think the transitory element's probably the most common mm. one for me. Not so much skulls, skulls and owls. No. Is that hurting anyone else's ears? Can you hear that? Okay. 
Um, well, on the note of death, <laughs> we'll change to colour. Um, Rebecca Bauman's work, Rebecca's also an artist who's based in Perth, um, and her work features at the back of Gallery One. It's the automated colour field, which is um, 100 split flat display clocks, yeah. uh, a moving activated colour field. And obviously, well, for me, I suppose, the most overwhelming element of that work is colour. And I know um, from following your practice for the past few years, colour has been a very important part of that. It would be interesting, I think, people would kind of like to know about, um, I guess, how that relationship to colour has evolved. I know that you've kind of referenced pop psychology and colour theory, and I also know it kind of has more emotional, intuitive reading but I, maybe if you could just expand a little bit more on how, on I guess the role that colour has kind of played. Um, well, I've always used colour in my work and um, when we first started speaking about new, that was one of the things I really knew that I wanted to explore further and to actually kind of get to the bottom of, I yep. suppose, because I've always had such um, an inherent attraction to it and, and I wasn't really sure why, I guess, in some ways. So, I, so when I was working on this, you know, I was doing a residency in Berlin, so I had this great opportunity to sort of take a bit of a step back from my work and to, and to read and to, and to do all the things that time allows you to. Yeah. Um, and I guess what I, really, what I really found in the end was I, I think colour is a really interesting thing because it is sort of... It's almost, it's, you know, it's universal, it's sort of owned by no one and um, sort of nearly experienced by everyone all the time, and, but it's sort of like how do you know what your experience is, of that colour is. Yeah. compared to someone else and, um, and I think, and it's sort of also uh, beyond our uh, descriptive, beyond language in a way, like how, yeah, it, and beyond our descriptive powers. So, and I kind of was interested also in the, um, the different uh, associations and readings people have of combinate different co color combinations, which can be cultural and uh, or you know social. How, yeah, everyone approaches it differently and sees different things, and it means different things to them. I think so. And but color in this work, it's sort of moving color. It's color color in flux, I suppose. Yeah. And. Um, you know, the activation of colour and the activation of materials is something that is also featured in your works. Um, generally through the acts of celebration, which are also sort of tend to have an element of aggression or destruction in mm. them. And I know that last year when you went and did a residence, oh, you didn't do a residency, but you went to visit India yeah. for the Holi Festival. And I know that was quite a formative kind of experience in terms of this notion of celebration and happiness and how these things are... Uh, both achieved but kind of enacted as well. Yeah. I wondered if you might talk about that sort of earlier body of work which was more about sort of celebration and how that's kind yeah. of demonstrated and perhaps how that experience at the Holly Festival sort of shifted things a little bit or um, clarified things a little bit anyway. Yeah, well, my older work or some of my previous work the last couple of years has been, um, a lot of it's been quite ephemeral um, or interactive sort of be uh, a lot more, and quite aggressive, yeah, explosions of colour or like using confetti or uh, exploding balloons. It's like, um, and I, uh, when I went to, 
and so it's always been this sort of thing about sort of celebration, but then also when it sort of starts, to, when it's that sort of fine line between sort of that and violence or... Destruction. And when, yeah, or destruction. And when, and so, yeah, it's all, the works usually um, end up just as sort of debris. Um, and when I did go to India for that festival, it was, yeah, it was actually, it was, it was one of those things where it actually started to get this really knife edge where you think, oh, this could turn because for those, just maybe... It's called, it's, yeah, it's a, called Holi, it's a festival of colours, and um, it's, I think it's a, it's a Hindu festival, festival for the beginning of spring, and it's sort of this night of bonfires, and um, which really makes you realise how controlled we, uh, we are in Australia, because it's just, you know, there are little motorcycles everywhere, and they're just light, and these things are huge, and they're just going up, and you're just thinking, oh my God, like, I'm you know... Terrified. <laughs> yeah, terrified. <laughs> and then the next day, is this festival of colours where you you get yeah, you get this little bag of colour for like ten cents or something and you kind of go up to everyone and rub colour all over your, their faces and hug them and and everyone's stoned and they're drunk and and it's just this very different and I think also being a Western woman I started getting groped and it was all very it was all starting to get very yeah and like and they're also targeting you and so it starts to and it was just like this is not fun anymore this is. <laughs> So that was, um, yeah, that was an interesting experience to have, and I sort of made a work after that, which was um, a performance using coloured smoke, which was had this, yeah, using pyrotechnician and had this sort of big explosion, and then these sort of beautiful wafts of of coloured smoke pluming into the sky in the cultural centre in Perth, and um, it sort of I felt like kind of summed up that experience and that sort of body of work in a way. Maybe it was the Maybe it was the final work. Final work in that body of work, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wonder also, too, because a lot of your work, particularly the earlier... Mm. Well, no, all of the works, actually, have yeah. been about this moment of change, whether it be kind of um, destruction or generation, and whether it be just a single act or something and sort of repeated. Mm. It's an interesting um, point, and it's an, again, it's kind of an, an elusive point or a fleeting point, I wonder with this work that's in the show, where you've actually introduced the elements of clocks, so things are actually recording time, and it is, it's of a 24-hour duration, this work. Ha have you thought, thought have you had time yet, I suppose, to think through the fleeting in the moment, and yet something that's kind of being marked out, the actual recording How? of those moments? How? With the clocks? Yeah. Um, can you, can well, you rephrase? I guess the earlier works were all about a moment. Yeah, yeah. This one is about. This one is about, I guess, however many, however many minutes there are in a day, because they're all yeah. marked out. Yeah. It's a much more, um, in a way, it's kind of constructed. Yeah, constructed by time. Mm -hmm. So there's a series of moments, and there is this also, the possibility or the potential for the whole colour field going yellow at one point. Mm. We don't know. I don't know. Is that ever going to happen? I wonder. Um, but it seems to be less fleeting. The flux sort of seems to be less fleeting. It's kind of more... Um, there are more moments, I suppose. There are more moments of a sort of observation. Yeah, I mean, when I was um, making the work and one of the things I was thinking about is like everything that you feel in a day and it becomes, you know, and, 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 that, and it's always... Uh, I think everything's always about this sort of perfect moment but really life is just a series of many moments, like, you know, yeah. one after the other. After, And it's like, it almost becomes a diagram or something or a... 
yeah, I don't know. Diagram pop psychology. Yeah. <laughs> but you also saw a big colour field exhibition when you were away, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, at the Deutsche Guggenheim. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and got to go to the Dom and see Gerhard Richter's yeah. windows and... Yeah, so I was looking at a lot of that sort of, that, that old stuff, definitely. And, I mean, the work for you kind of comes after several years making works which have been mostly about kind of acts of celebration. It also comes after the visit to India and five months in Berlin doing the residency. Mm. And it's a work that's very focused on colour rather than a momentary act. Do you kind of find yourself, or do you be conscious of yourself heading down a new, or sort of shifting a little bit in, in terms of your practice and the focus with colour and with emotion, but is anything else kind of emerging? I, a few people have asked me this and I sort of actually don't know yeah. because I just feel so tired <laughs> from the whole so thing. <laughs> no, but I, I think tired. it's sort of almost like you need, the, you need the distance. And I have been working on this and like on this one work, like the work, the perfect work yeah. for like so long and it's sort of like, oh, what, what do you, it's almost so much focused, like I feel like, oh, yeah. what do you do? What do you do now? So I kind of, you I think I need to have... <laughs> I need to go back home to Perth. Yeah, <laughs> and then get, yep. get a couple of weeks. Ask me, but no, I think I think no, I do definitely think there has definitely been a shift, and I think um, the time in Berlin was was really great for that because yeah. it you know it was allowed me to have that, yeah. which I don't think I would have had otherwise if I was just making. I think it would have been a very different um, outcome if I'd just been in Perth and yeah. if I hadn't had that time. So I feel very privileged, I suppose, because I really just had five months just to think about it, like yeah. where everyone else had probably work and stuff. So it was, you know, so I think there's been, there's definitely feel like there's been a shift, but I just, I couldn't say at this moment, like what exactly. Where it is where, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. It's exciting. <laughs> I mean, it's also, um, you know, the process or the, the opportunity to kind of step out of the studio and to step out of day-to-day -day life. Um, doesn't happen often enough, obviously, no. because the benefits are ginormous. Um, and I suppose I do sometimes wonder about the experience of being in exhibitions um, like New, so sort of group exhibitions where you travel to another town and you present these works and you meet with lots of people and it's all very intense, presenting new work, installing and all socialising and what have you. It's quite a journey and whether I suppose you're going back to your home in North Melbourne or you're flying over the country to go back to Perth. The cycle is really intense. It is. <laughs> it's exciting from like the first conversations about, you know, making a show together and then the sort of, you know, the highs and lows that come with sort of forming the idea and being able to realise it. And certainly in Perth, like, there's some serious challenges like this. <laughs> You know, railways get flooded and you can't get materials and things like that. You know, there's these totally small, pragmatic things which are not, you know, so interesting to talk about, obviously, but, you know, they kind of build towards this anxiety and this kind of final culmination of presenting this thing. And then you go home. And it's that weird post-exhibition blues, I suppose. Has anyone got a solution? <laughs> The gym, lie on the t oh, gym, or lie on the couch and watch the TV. Yeah. I suppose. <laughs> Go out in the sunshine. What's the solution, Brendan, to post-exhibition blues? I think not to think. Drunk. The drunks. <laughs> I don't think the drinking's working. No. I think that's, that's doesn't not work. <laughs> I think to, I think to not think about it for a couple of weeks, just to like completely do something else and not think Go about it. Go back to another job. 
Yeah. Or move, move on to the next thing. Yeah, yeah work on other work. That kind of helps. Yeah. Just that keep helps. going. Yeah. Insatiable. Yeah. Or shopping. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. Annie, you're going to fly back to Amsterdam in a couple, tomorrow. which we're all probably quite jealous of. Tomorrow. Okay. Um, Annie has, well, moved to Amsterdam or to Rotterdam three years ago, two, three years ago. First to Amsterdam and then to Rotterdam. Yeah, yeah. to do her master's over there. And um, has presented, you know, put together a really fantastic project for New Eleven. It's a newspaper, so it's a, it's a print-based publication. Can, could you just tell the audience a little bit just about the nature of the publication itself, the document, its history? Um, uh, well, the, uh, what I reprinted is the anthology of the New Australia Movement Journal, and, and, um, and as the description says next to the newspaper, um, it, it was a movement that was formed in um, 1893 by William Lane, and it was it, uh, basically um, it was the idea that they could um, create a much more fair and, um, uh, well, essentially socialist society outside of Australia. And so a group of 250 people moved away from um, Australia into Paraguay to set up this commune called a New Australia. And uh, very soon afterwards, it ruptured and uh, failed, basically, and a lot of the people returned and some stayed and some are still there. And there are now generations of people that, um, uh, that were originally um, the first settlers in Paraguay. And now the grandchildren uh, of that generation um, are still there. And there's been some interesting documents and interviews um, that I've seen uh, on, on the internet about it. And yeah, it's, it seems like um, it's, it's a bit of a forgotten dream, actually. Um, yeah, if you watch those documentaries of the people speaking about the past and what happened there. A lot of people have asked uh, at the opening in the days following how you actually came across, A, the movement, because it's not certainly not something that uh, I recall in Australian history at, yeah. at high school or university. So not only how you came across this sort of um, early informative part of Australia's own socialist history, mm. but the documentation, the newspaper itself, how, how in your kind of searches and studies yeah. you actually came across this document, which yeah. is held in an archive in Sydney. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, last time I was in Melbourne, August last year, uh, I was at a friend's house and he actually had a book um, that he had found a thrift store for a dollar on Australia and communism. And I thought that it was kind of an unlikely combination just because uh, um, just because I didn't, I didn't really uh, know so much about it, and so I actually stole it from him, and I was like reading a lot of it, <laughs> and uh, uh, when I was there, and um, and then and and um, and just kind of through discussions with some friends of mine, um, of some of which kind of research political histories in uh, or kind of um, obscure political movements within um, the history of the world's kind of, and uh, we came across this movement just, yeah, with, with research on the internet, actually. And so just a few kind of occurrences and then through, through that, mm -hmm. and then discussions, yeah. And in reprinting, like in, in I mean, because I think there actually is still a printed document of the newspapers, but incredibly fragile. And essentially it's really only available as a digital file yep. on the archive, because of yep. its fragile state. In, I suppose, re-materializing 
that document as an as a, um, archive, a printed object, and making it available through 10,000 copies, you know, which will be hopefully sort of disseminated over the duration of the exhibition. What intentions or what um, hopes, I suppose, do you think there might, there, I guess, do you have for the project? I mean, originally when I first came up with the idea, I mean, we were discussing that maybe it's a, it's a, it's a, there's a possibility to reprint something, and um, just because of my, the nature of my previous work, which is also based in kind of um, print and based and, uh, uh, and kind of more researched uh, works. Um, yeah, I, thought, I mean, I thought about this kind of idea of new and the premise of this show and um, in the making of new work and what that means in kind of the, uh, in the history of like art discourse as well. And, uh, and so I thought it would be kind of interesting to reprint um, an old document or we'll kind of make it available again as a new work um, with kind of old ideas which, uh, which can still be, which are, which are still discussable and still relevant, you know, to, um, to society. <laughs> yeah. And, and also to kind of, I guess, I would like to, uh, I mean, to reach, reintroduce, I don't know, uh, maybe more of a social aspect to the work that I make. I always kind of make, I'm conscious of that as well. Yeah. And, um, and, and as a, just when republishing kind of an educational resource can reach beyond like an, uh, an immediate art audience, I think, and into kind of um, other aspects, uh, other, sorry, other, other pockets of society. And, um, and as, a, as a work, I think I like that it's a, it's a useful tool as well. It's a resource, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a part of Australian history, which we're all a part of and, um, and should actively kind of investigate and I think yeah. look into more. And, um, and I guess it's quite a very, it's quite a nationalistic work as well to kind of represent a part of Australian history in your, in, in your work and um, and I, I feel like maybe a lot of um, uh, I think the nature of Australians also are not very um, proud or something I feel like that there's a, there's a very there's, there's a sense of you know awkwardness or something when discussing um, yeah national identity Underplaying and, that yeah mm -hmm. and I think especially in the art community there's not so much of an awareness of what Australia is actually like I mean just from speaking from experience just living overseas. And uh, most people kind of talk about kangaroos and things like that, but actually, <laughs> and um, so I think I think through I mean, one of my motives was to kind of um, through art kind of introduce um, an aspect of society into like the rest of the world, or to and kind a, of a very important, very history interesting part of Australia's own history. Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of countries, especially in America, um, ha uh, has their own kind of very uh, as of like a big history of. Um, Utopian novels and um, and things like that, and a lot of things I looked at as well, like when I was um, researching this project, and also with my other previous works as well, and um, and so so it's quite interesting to discover something that's also like much closer to home. Yeah, yeah. and it's it really is um, an in, an incredibly charming publication anthology. You know, it's got the topographical maps of Paraguay, so where I think it was two boatloads wasn't it, yeah, in the end, yeah. of, of um, I guess, members of the New Australia movement actually ended up settling in Paraguay when the government was giving away land. It's got a marching song for the New Australia men and a marching song for the New Australia women, lots of poetry, and also down just to sort of nuts and bolts of, of trade and community services. Mm. 
Sorry, what the true... uh, down to the nuts and bolts of just how the communities yeah. were actually running because the, pub, the, the newspaper was actually published when they were still based in Queensland um, and originally sort of started as a means, well, as a newsletter, mm. so kind of um, promoting their New Australia Movement ideology but also in some sense to try and convert new members. But as they moved to Paraguay, I mean, essentially the publication happened through mail mm. from Paraguay to Australia. I think Wagga Wagga is where it ended up being published from. Mm -hmm. And it's a brilliant document to, well, to this kind of failed utopia, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And Mary, I mean, I think quite a few interesting people ended up making the journey and being part of New Australia, including Mary Gilmore, um, you know, who returned and had a huge impact on female politics and socialist politics in Australia. Mm. Shane Hazeman, whose work is behind us here, he's interested in... Um, you know, the early avant-garde languages of constructivism and suprematism, but constructivism mm. to a stronger degree. And, you know, I, I, I wonder in, again, in sort of making this exhibition and looking at sort of um, visual languages, visual idioms, graphic idioms, mm -hmm. and that relationship between art movements and also sort of political publishing. You yeah. know, a lot of the constructivists, a lot of their energies went towards posters for the Leninists in, what, 1915, 1915 Russia. Yeah. Are there other periods where you've looked at sort of the relationships perhaps between art movements, graphics, design and political publishing? Are there other kind of, I guess, periods in the sort of 19th or 20th century? No, I mean, well, in the case of the Netherlands, maybe the distilled movement, which is kind of very similar and branching off from the constructivist or Russian, uh, that period, Soviet, period um, and but I think with uh, the common thread I guess among all those movements is that they utilize art as a tool to as an to um, inform the public or it's not just like a it's not just for decoration and it's not um, just for like visual pleasure or something like it's it's actually a useful tool like and, and as an artist you have a role to uh, inform the public and um, and make your make your skills useful basically for society mm. yeah and I think um, that's where I guess the the link between maybe graphic uh, design and art is here because yeah yeah yeah. I was going to sort of throw a question at you, and I'm not because it'll, I think it'll make us all cry. But <laughs> it was actually about contemporary. It was about contemporary um, politics and publishing and strategies of communicating, and just how how terribly absent there the relationship is even, you know, between the visual arts, political publishing, political strategies of communication. There's such a huge, I mean, everything still has a brand, but everything kind of still looks the same. I wonder if there is ever a time where the two will kind of, you know, coalesce or cross over. Do you mean in Australia? In, in the world, I mean, yeah, in the world. Um, I think there's a, I mean, I mean, I don't see it so much here, but um, of course, I mean, in the Netherlands, I mean, publishing, I mean, a lot of my friends are graphic designers and um, they're, they're, I mean, they're not just graphic designers that work for studios, but they're graph they have very autonomous practices mm -hmm. and, um, and publishing is actually a big part of their practice as well. I mean, they, they, they come with the material, they design and then publish and distribute and, um, and also the, the con they take charge of the content as well. And, um, and most of the, what they produce is very kind of, important uh, to them and um, I think they treat it more like a source as an art practice as well and so all these things are naturally kind of uh, linked over there and so I 
I, I don't see so much of a separation between um, uh, all these facets, actually. Yeah, to I me. I think the Netherlands is like, I mean, it's from the outside, perhaps, the Netherlands sort of seems like a, the capital for that, a lot of that practice, though. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's kind of encouraged as well over there. Um, just, uh, I think, um, I guess a lot of the, uh, I think the mentors as well there, um, when you go through school and... It's very rich, you know, in terms of exchange and generosity between mentors and students and just the culture seems to be very generous. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, as well, yeah. And, I mean, a lot of graphic designers I idolised that are in their 70s now, so I mean, grew up in, uh, in, in a period where, yeah, um, graphic design was a very essential tool and um, I guess over there uh, a lot of the crossover between yeah this uh, design and art is not as obvious as well mm. and um, yeah <laughs> Annie and Warren Taylor have also recorded a conversation discussion that's kind of focused more on Australian the Australian context in the end not so much. Not so no, much. Just, just kind of about uh, design and publishing in general. Yeah. So I kind of go much more in depth in that as well. So if you're interested, yeah, this is going to be online. That's right. The sound file from the ACA website. That is my questions. That's all. I mean, we've been talking about it for a year, so it's hard to ask me questions of these people. I have to say, but it's been very enjoyable. Um, was there any questions out there from anybody? Annie, with your work and how important the archive was, did you want to, did straight away when you found about this story about this new Australian movement, did you initially, was it straight away you knew you wanted to reproduce it as a newspaper? Or did you explore other ways of telling this story? Um, I think I decided to make, I decided to republish it after I was invited to be part of New, and I thought that um, as an idea, it sounded, yeah, to me, it was, it was completely appropriate as well. Yeah, no, it, it wasn't because I wanted to make a project about New Australia and then utilised, yeah, this platform to do it. I think it was the other way around, yeah. Does that answer your question? With that, with that movement and the role of the archive in that movement, there would have been other supplementary, supplementary material that came out of the New Australia movement. Like there must have been photographs and yeah. other kind of things but the, that, that you focused on the newspaper. I guess I just wanted to... That idea of using that mm. and then reproducing it. Because it worked so well, it's so successful. I was say, did you explore any other avenues before you made that one choice? Mm. Mm. Yeah, and then I think it's really about, it's, it's much more of a, um, a publishing choice because, uh, I mean, I'd always kind of, um, I was always very interested in publishing and especially republishing old texts that are um, out of print and uh, during my research when I came across this journal, um, it had already um, been scanned and um, it was available online as, as PDFs. Um, but. Yeah, but I've realised that there were actually very limited copies of it floating around, um, and they were in, they were kept in kind of uh, rare libraries, and hard to get hold of. And although um, it's scanned and available online, uh, I feel like um, 
that um, the reason to republish it is to kind of make a, I think it's it's always it's easier to make a big impact and to um, to draw focus on a subject matter if there is um, material to be kind of surrounded by. And, um, and so I thought this was a good opportunity to do that, to bring something back in that sense, and also in relation to this idea of new and old. And yeah, yeah. Are there any final questions? Must have been a comprehensive talk, no. <laughs> as always. Um, thank you, Hannah, again. Fantastic questions and also a big thank you to Annie and um, Rebecca and also Brendan tonight for coming along. Okay, so there's a couple of things to tell you very quickly. Next week, we'll be continuing this series. We've got Mark Hilton, Daniel Monaghan, and also Fiona Abacare, and they'll be talking with Hannah again. Um, there is a free glass of wine for you, if you would care for it now over at the bar, because there's more. Um, we have an ABC special event starting at 7.30 here and another artist talk. So um, feel free to go and have a look at the exhibition or help yourself to some wine. Thank you for coming.